Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Sports physical therapist and PhD researcher Eliza Nedelec heard so many harmful myths about girls and women's exercising, their period and the risk of getting musculoskeletal injuries that she started researching it. Today, Eliza explains what research can tell us about the relationship between reproductive hormones like estrogen, progesterone and testosterone and injury in female athletes, and perhaps more importantly, what the research cannot tell us. Eliza is adamant that girls and women should continue to stay active and play sport, and she explains why in today's episode. Eliza is completing her PhD in Sport and Exercise Physiology at Nottingham Trent University in the UK, where she studies reproductive hormones and non-contact ACL injuries in female athletes. Welcome to JOSPT Insights, Eliza. Hi, Claire. Thank you for having me about the round. Thanks for joining us. And today we're talking sport, injury and hormones. And I think the implications for the women and girls who are playing sport, but also the coaches, the clinicians, the parents, all of the people around women and girls who are supporting them to make decisions about exercise and participating in sport. So let me start by asking you to share what are some of the common myths that girls or women might hear about exercise, injury and their period? That's really a great question to start with and not the, the easiest. So yeah, girls and women might hear or read different common myths depending on the environment they evolve in and depending on their age as well. And the few we might cover uh, in the next point um, are not an exhaustive list. So it's important to keep in mind actually that the high variability of factors for each individual is, is very specific. First myth, let's say, that, that women and girls could hear about or read about could be I have a higher risk of injury during a specific phase of my menstrual cycle. I would say that reproductive hormones variations occur during the characteristic phases of the menstrual cycle, but these variations are different between girls and women and also between cycles. We are all different. A menstrual cycle in a woman between two cycles will not be the same every time. Again, which injury are we talking about? Are we talking about musculoskeletal injuries? But which one? Is it a bone fracture, a tendon injury, a ligament injury? At the moment, there's not enough evidence to give a proper confirmation, actually, about this myth. The second point I could say that could be a common myth, I have a lower risk of injury if I take a hormonal contraceptive. Well, hormonal contraceptives don't regulate the level of reproductive hormones. But which hormonal contraceptive are we discussing about? It's not possible, actually, to draw a conclusion without having gold standard methodological quality studies done on each type of hormonal contraceptive. At the moment, we have a lot of data and a lot of research papers about the oral contraceptive pill, but this is not the only product that is on the market at the moment. And 50% roughly of the population of uh, female athletes or female exercisers are taking hormonal contraception, but not 50% of them are using only the oral contraceptive pill. So we are missing somewhere here uh, data about all the types of hormonal contraceptive. Additionally, the oral contraceptive pill is not universal and has many variations in its composition. We don't have enough evidence at the moment to give uh, um, a clear, actually, uh, confirmation of this, of this myth. 
So the third point could be actually, I train very hard and I do not have my periods for a few months. This is normal. I'm training hard enough. I don't risk any injuries as I'm young. Well, if you don't have periods for a few months, there is a need to discuss this with your surrounding medical staff, the general practitioner, the gynecologist. Uh, there is a high risk, actually, of low energy availability, especially in female athletes, and a risk for the bone density to lower down, uh, putting the exerciser or the athlete at higher risk of fractures, of bone fractures. And being young in this situation doesn't protect the exerciser or the athlete for a severe situation as bone density is still created in the early years of adulthood. The fourth myth could be, I am pregnant, I have always exercised, but now with the hormonal changes, I have a higher risk of injury, so I stop exercising. If the pregnancy is safe without risk of complications, I think, and I assume that um, many researchers would agree with me or many clinicians, that a reasonable continuation of physical activity is highly recommended during pregnancy. And if formal injuries happen before the pregnancy, it's also safer to discuss potential adaptation of the physical activity that can be done during the pregnancy with medical practitioners around you. Of course, I would say that, yes, maybe it's not the best time of your life to try to train for a marathon if you're not a professional marathon runner during your pregnancy. But yeah, if you already run a marathon before, why not? You need to see with your medical staff around. Each individual is different and can respond actually in a very different way to any hormonal change. In parallel, the same individual would not necessarily respond the same way to the same change that might happen seven times in their life. What is a myth for someone can be a reality for someone else. And your clinical experience is really coming through here as well, Elisa. There's so many different messages and it can get confusing for the for the patient if we're talking about someone coming into the clinic to see you as a as a physio or as a sports and exercise medicine clinician the the person's coming in with particular information in mind you're getting confusing information if you're reading the research and it can it's just a, a yeah it's a bit of a minefield for people i think and then on top of that is perhaps this we've seen recently with a lot of high profile female sports teams where they're starting to use apps to track menstrual cycles and there's sort of again been this resurgence of push towards menstrual cycle monitoring and relating that to performance and healthcare. What would you say to someone, say a, a clinician who has been asked by the club that they work for to to investigate some of these products that are on the market, some of these apps or some of these systems as kind of the the magic bullet to solve this challenge of injuries in female athletes? There are at the moment, uh, and that will be forever, there are too many profiles actually of, of menstrual milieu, menstrual profiles. We have too many persons who have different type of profiles during the entire lifespan. So that's something that you can have a certain profile, let's say between your 15 and 20, but between your 20 and 25, you will have a completely different profile if you start to implement normal contraceptive, for example, or if you start to have menstrual irregularities. I think the most important thing here is to be clear about menstrual health. That's something that should be monitored in any case. Menstrual health can be monitored um, without any question here. Uh, that's something that sh should be normalized. We shouldn't raise expectation about what this menstrual health app would deliver to you, to the user, because this is something that is completely different. The science behind that is, is completely different about what this app can deliver to you, the users, 
rather than what the research knows at the moment. And there's a strong disparity at the moment. So monitoring your menstrual health is very good. That's fantastic. That's something that you can do easily with a paper or a pen. That's something that you need to constantly monitor and be aware of. But I think this is important to say to people that they shouldn't expect something from the apps to tell them what to do or to tell them what to adapt because it's still an app and the variation of hormonal profile is still going on in the life of the, the, the user. So I guess the message there could be don't make the change to your training program or don't implement some kind of specific injury prevention intervention purely based on the information that you get out of the app. It's about looking at the profile of the menstrual profile for the for the athlete and then deciding whether this is something that we need to make some changes or or that it might be concerning for the person's the woman's overall health. Yeah, that's going to be a very personal approach at the end anyway, um, because each person will be different and each each person will have different expectations to adapt the program. So let me ask you this. Do hormones cause ligament injuries? Oh, that's a big question. <laughs> so here we need to define which hormones we are talking about. So my own coverage of this question treats only about reproductive ovarian hormones that are estrogen, progesterone and testosterone. Sorry to disappoint. I won't go back into more details about other hormones because, well, it's not my research area, so I don't want to disappoint anyone, you know. So a simple answer to this question would be no. Uh, reproductive hormones are not the cause for ligament injuries in female exercises or female athletes. But reproductive hormones have been identified as one of the risk factors in the long list of risk factors for anterior cruciate ligament injuries, for example. If we continue with the example of the ACL injury, this is important to first differentiate non-contact ACL injury with direct or indirect contact ACL injury. Most of ACL injuries occur without direct contact made to the athlete's knee. It is the outcome of a multifactorial model with non-modifiable factors such as anatomy, genetics, and hormones, and modifiable factors such as neuromechanics. The authors of a recent study um, have also explored actually the complex issue of ACL injury rate disparity between boys or men and girls or women through the lens of the gendered environment in which girls and women evolve. And I think this article actually needs to have some highlights. The article you're talking about is in BJSM in 2020, and it was looking at putting the sociological aspect on top of the purely musculoskeletal or the anatomical perspective lens and the biomechanical lens through which we've looked at these injuries over a long, long period of time. And, and I know that you know some folks have done some work in the sociological perspective before, but I think what this paper, for me, what this paper really brought was melding those two together in a sports medicine and sports rehabilitation perspective. So I wonder, what has that paper brought for you, Elisa? Why do you think it's so good? I fell in love with this paper. Am I allowed to say that? Yes. This paper is great because actually they went further exploring actually what happens with ACL injuries and this entire gendered environment that women or girls are going through that they are not necessarily training uh, like boys or men because we somehow, so when I say we, it can be the society, it can be the entire environment around them, so the family, the parents, that can be the coach or the, the, the practitioners even, um, expecting perhaps her to do something in terms of 
reach a certain level of practice, but she might be able to go further and she might be able to do better and she might be perhaps able to be more confident in herself. So this entire this entire broad frame that they brought into the article was actually brilliant for me because it really gave me thinking further than only, yes, it can be biomechanical only or neuromechanics. I've seen lots of people commenting, saying similar things to you. So I think it has really broadened the way that plenty of people in sports medicine, sports rehabilitation are thinking about injury and risk and the opportunities for different people. Why or why not people have or have not had opportunities. Now, you mentioned risk factors and hormones as a risk factor or particularly reproductive hormones as a risk factor for ACL injury or musculoskeletal injury more broadly. So what do we know? And maybe more importantly, what don't we know about that risk factor profile of the relationship between reproductive hormones? And let's take ACL injury as sort of our example for musculoskeletal injury, Elisa. So this is the biggest Question in the research area. So, reproductive hormone will interact differently, as I mentioned quickly before, with each structure, so with bone, tendon, or ligament. Sex hormone receptors have been found on the human ACL, and several studies have suggested that reproductive hormone variations along the menstrual cycle have an impact on general joint laxity and anterior knee laxity in female participants. But all these studies didn't agree on a consensus regarding the phase or phases of the menstrual cycle when the greater laxity was observed. There are two likely mechanisms through which greater knee laxity is associated with a greater risk of ACL injuries, so biomechanical mechanism, which means when the ACL acts as a passive restraint to control the tibial motion during weight-bearing activities, and the bio- biological mechanism, uh, meaning that a more lax ligament could represent a structurally weaker uh, ligament that is more prone to failure or more likely to fall um, to fail, sorry, a given critical load. A lot remain unknown actually about the mechanism in this potential relationship between menstrual cycle phase and ACL injury. So it is known that sex hormones have the potential to influence the collagen production and the structural integrity of ligaments, but the way reproductive hormones interact with soft tissues and their role in ACL failure is still largely unknown. We can't talk about ACL injuries and reproductive hormones without mentioning Professor Sandra Schultz. So she reported in previous studies that there is high intra and interviability in sex hormone variations during the menstrual cycle and that moments of important sex hormone variations are a key point, the turning point in the equation. And there's also evidence of a time and dose-dependent effect by which soft tissues changes may occur in response to hormone concentration changes. Any effect would be due to a complex interaction among several hormones and not only due to estrogen, as reported very, very often in the literature. The latest systematic review and meta-analysis has reported actually that ACL laxity and risk injury may be increased in the periovulatory phase of the menstrual cycle. But the overall strength of evidence is low, periovulatory, but it is before the ovulation, during the ovulation, right after the ovulation. So you can get a sense of this timing issue actually within this research area. And in practice, a sensible individual approach would be expected as there is a high intra and interviability of hormonal profiles between different menstrual cycles and different exercising women or female athletes. There is so much variability in the individuals, the individual 
uh, female athletes' menstrual cycle, and then there's a lot of variability between different female athletes in their menstrual cycles. So that's kind of adding another layer of complexity into the research here. And it sounds like there's a lot of a lot that we don't know, and um, a lot that's ripe for work. Which leads me into the Fair ACL Project, F A I R ACL Project, of which you are leading, co-leading. So can you tell us a little bit more about this? Fair ACL project and what it is and what you're aiming to do with the, with the work, Elisa. So before explaining actually the core of the Fair ACL project, that might be helpful for the listeners to highlight that Fair ACL acronym stands for the Female Athlete Injury Registry for Anterior Cruciate Ligaments. So yeah, the Fair ACL project is one of my PhD studies under the supervision of Professor Kistelia State, and it's an online questionnaire that collects qualitative and quantitative uh, data about the lived experience of female athletes when they sustained their non-contact ACA injury. What was their sport? What was their hormonal profile? And uh, what was their hormonal status actually at the time of their ACA injury? So for example, was the athlete in a certain phase of a menstrual cycle when it happened? Was the athlete taking contraceptives or hormonal therapies when it happened? Fair ACL project collects this information from the participating athletes and the members of uh, their coaching staff or their medical staff to whom they might ask more details from. And once all data collection comes to an end in February 2022, uh, we will analyze the data and observe if there are some patterns where some hormonal profiles might be related to the occurrence of a non-contact ACL injury in different sports. Just to go back quickly to the questionnaire, so that's a questionnaire that takes more or less between, let's say, 10 to 15 minutes to complete only one time. And it's asking about four types of information, so the general information, the sport profile information, the ACL injury profile, and the health of the athlete during the week before an ACL injury. Elisa, for folks who are listening to us today who are in the UK and are working with female athletes or exercisers, active people, is there a way that clinicians can refer patients into the FAIR ACL project? Are you still collecting data? I guess what I'm asking is how can people get involved? So we are still active online actually until February 2022, so it's not too late. They can come and, and, and participate in the project. We will be more than happy. But just a little update, actually, we have received a lot at the moment of participants from football, netball. So that's really the two sports where we had a lot of participants and we are super grateful for that. We have opened it to international participants because we wanted to implement other sports like Australian rule football. So yeah, participants can join us and participate in the project. They have to be female athletes from the age of the first period as of 12 to the onset of the natural menopause. They have to practice a sport from the list of the 18 sports we have selected, and the participants must have sustained an ACL injury in the last three months. And this um, project details can be found on the website at fairacl.project.isrg.org.uk, where we also have a four-minute video explaining the project. And we are also present on Twitter where people can follow us on at Fair ACL Project, see our progress and get information about ACL injuries in female athletes. And if people have questions, of course, they can contact us, um, the research team via the contact form available on our website or via direct message, um, private direct message on Twitter. Wonderful that you're gathering data from all over the world, because as you say, there are lots of female athletes internationally who participate in a variety of sports and it's important to try to capture that 
diversity of sport. And we'll also link to the website and put some of the details up in the show notes. So if people check the show notes for today's episode, you'll be able to find the web address and the Twitter handle for the Fair ACL project. Elisa, as we're wrapping up today, I'm really keen to know what your advice would be to people listening out there who might be thinking, oh, it's all just too dangerous. Women shouldn't play these high-risk sports like football, soccer, Australian football, lacrosse, basketball, netball, all of these things with lots of direction change because the risk for ACL injury particularly is so high. What would you say to people who are thinking, so clinicians who are advising athletes and and people who want to stay active, how can women best take care of their musculoskeletal health and balance this risk-benefit equation? Yeah, that's a, a broad um, a broad point, and I think that's important here to perhaps release a bit the, the the pressure on the shoulders of the female athletes or female exercisers because they are only they are not alone in this equation, and clearly that's something touch upon injury prevention strategies. Um, so injury prevention must be done in a common effort from several entities, and not only the female athletes or female exercisers themselves. So. They must have an entire frame around them to be able to perform, to be able to exercise safely. Uh, and that's something that I, I, I will just take a bit of, of time to, to go through now. So, of course, like me, I'm a researcher. So research should continue in this area and uh, improving the quality of research done, actually implementing gold standard methodology when studying reproductive hormones profile and implementing additional hormonal profiles, such as adolescent hormonal contraceptives other than combined oral contraceptives. Pregnant women, premenopausal women, and menopausal women as well. Sport governing bodies should support and continue the effort to implement injury prevention strategies in the weekly routine of female exercisers and female athletes. Female athletes must also be supported in the professionalization of their sport. The expansion of women's sport is happening right now. And this is important that the, the athletes receive the best professional environment to perform and evolve safely. Conversation about menstrual health and the risk of injury should not be restricted to a gender, but should be open between all professionals working in sports with female athletes or female exercisers. This, should, this shouldn't be a conversation to have only amongst females. The best way to continue playing a sport while enjoying it without being afraid of what might happen is actually to control the controllable. You might say, okay, easier said than done. <laughs> and you might think, okay, how does this translate into real life on the pitch? So we strongly encourage girls and women to listen to their body, monitor their own health, their menstrual health, their sleeping health, their hydration, their mood, anything that occurs outside of their habits. They know better than anyone how they feel. For example, if the elements of a training session might feel more difficult than usual, it's important to take note of it and observe if there is a pattern for a few weeks or a few months. Girls and women can ask for educated advice to professionals and practitioners to learn about injury prevention programs in their own sport. This is very important to be specific to the sport you practice. So, of course, they should implement the advice they have received from the professionals and practitioners as much as possible in their weekly schedule all year long in pre-season as well. So it's not because you're not in the training position that you shouldn't think about your own health. And that's something that should be implemented as well in pre-season very strongly. And another way to be very proactive is also wearing adequate gear. So the right shoes for the right surface. And additionally, that's something that is not related to ACL injuries, but also wearing the right bra for the right level of activity you are doing. 
And finally, it's worth it to be proactive and to be informed about ACL injury management before an ACL injury happens. What I'm hearing is that there's a lot of really good reasons to stay active in sports, to keep playing that sport that you love. And the good news is that there's a lot of things that you as an individual athlete or active person can do to help yourself to perform to the best of your ability and do the things that you really want to do. There's lots of help available and it should not be a question of, okay, this is a scary thing and I should quit sport altogether because, you know, I might end up with a problem with my musculoskeletal health. No, never quit sport. That's perfect for your life. (laughs) I agree. I reckon that's a really good message for us to end on. Elisa, thank you so much for taking the time to join me on JOSPT Insights today. You're welcome. That was a pleasure, Claire. Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favourite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, we're JOSPT Official. Talk with you next time.